We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today played on three straight undefeated teams in high school and then won a national championship at Notre Dame. However, shortly after beginning his career in the NFL, he was drafted by the Army and deployed to Vietnam, where he would get shot in one leg and have a grenade blow up on the other on the same day. After four years of grinding and perseverance, he became a starting running back on the four-time Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers. His story is both amazing and inspiring. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Rocky Blyer. Rocky, hey. welcome. Thanks, Rich. Thank you very much for having, having me on your show. I appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, Rocky, um, let's, let's just go back to the beginning. You were born in Appleton, Wisconsin one of four kids. Your dad owned a bar called Blyer's Bar. That's right. You went to Appleton Xavier High School. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Appleton. Well, you know, so you just got to go back in time. And so in time, I was born in 46, obviously, then into the 50s. And, um, and uh, so you so it grew up. So I grew up on the corner of Walnut and Lawrence. Okay, so that was one block off of the main street uh, in Appleton, Wisconsin, you know, right across the street was the brewery, Admiral Brown Beer. One block down on the left was St. Joe's Catholic Church, where we went to church. On the opposite half block on, further down on the right side was a school, um, St. Joe's Catholic School. Now, next door was another bar called Schreiter's. And so Paul Schreiter and myself, the same age, we grew up together in the bar business. And so we're still dear friends uh, to this day. Um, after all those years, but it, you know, was a typical Midwest uh, area in which to, you know, to grow up. And um, my 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 dad's uh, grandparents, I should say, you know, lived about one, two, three, about four or five blocks away, and so uh, and and had relatives there and everything. But it was just, you know, things were. Who knew any different, you know? And so you grew up uh, in Wisconsin during that period of time and uh, um, and just, you know, had some 
life experiences and uh, within the neighborhood and getting a chance to play you know, grade school, uh, sports, and then, uh, and you talked about Xavier High School. So then we have to talk about the baby boomers, obviously, in which I'm on that leading edge of, of baby boomers. And so the baby boomers came in 19, and so in 1960, or the latter part of the 50s, I should say, is that uh, we have this population that's coming, that's coming out of junior high and into high school. So um, we, they started building more high schools. And in this case, uh, they built Xavier, um, Xavier Catholic High School. So there was a brand, the only other Catholic high school in that area was uh, St. Mary's uh, over in Menasha. So growing up in the Fox Cities, you got to understand. So the Fox Cities <laughs> comprised of Appleton, Nina, Menasha, Little Shoot, Kakana, Combined Locks, all these little mill towns that were up the Fox Rivers, going up to Green Bay, coming down. And so paper mills, et cetera, et cetera, were um, in within that area. So it was just a, you know, a, 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 my mother was from Minnesota um, and she had met my father there in, uh, she had moved, <laughs> she had moved off the farm in Minnesota <laughs> to find her life. And so she was, uh, had some friends and was working over in um, Menasha, I think. And they had worked for the same company. That's how they met. And uh, they ultimately, they got married. Um, and dad then um, got into the bar business. I think he was 25 years old at the time. Um, and, uh, the, and, and this building, Blyers on the corner, was up for a, a lease to buy kind of a contract they had. And so, um, so dad took that place and got into the, got into the bar business. We kind of, you know, so you kind of grew up in this whole area. Now, 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 so St. Joe's, as I was just telling you, was the German uh, church. About two blocks away was St. Mary's. That was the Irish church. Um, and so St. Mary's was a rival with St. Joe's all the time. They had a coach over there. Uh, name of Torchy Clark, oh, who had a tremendous program. They, you can never beat Torchy. And uh, as I remember growing up, and, and he was over there. And so uh, then as, as, they, as the new high school was being designed and built in 58, it finally opened up, 59, um, they were building it at that time. So in 1960, they had the first they opened up the first, well, that's when I got there in 60. So I was, uh, the 59, they opened up, they had two classes, freshman and sophomore. And then by my time, in my, my freshman year, it was freshmen, sophomores and juniors. And then um, the following year, um, I, but we got into a brand new conference, a new Catholic conference that was being built with all these new Catholic schools that were being built. And so it went from Green Bay at the Fond du Lac to Oshkosh um, and surrounding areas. And so we had this new conference. And Torchy, who was the winning coach at the grade school, now became the head coach at uh, St. Ed, Ed Xavier. Um, we, started to, we started to win. So by my sophomore year, we were, uh, it was a full-fledged uh, four-year school and we were in the conference for the first time. And so in those three years, we lost five basketball games. We never lost a football game. 
We were the defending state champions. Um, we won the state champions and we were the defending state champions and we lost the championship game my senior year. So we had a great athletic, which put teams, which put Xavier kind of on the map uh, from an awareness point of view. Um, and then during that period of time, you get recognized, you know, for what that school did. And so I got a um, scholarship offer to go to the University of, uh, of Notre Dame. And so, um, um, and people say, well, how'd you choose <laughs> Notre Dame? You know, well, well, the interesting thing is that, you know, like every good Catholic boy, as I tell them, like every good Catholic boy, I did what I was supposed to do, which was go to church. You know, you go to church and you pray for guidance and direction and make sure that you, 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 you make the right decision as far as your future is concerned. Then like every good Catholic boy, I did what my mother wanted me to do. And that was to go to Notre Dame. So that's, that's how I ended up at Notre Dame. And uh, I mean, it really, and so it wasn't based on what they've done in the past or, or, or um, their history and or their coach at the moment in time. Because um, Huey DeVore was their interim coach. They weren't winning back in the 50s during that period of time. And, uh, and so who knew? And they got a new coach. His name was Eric Procedion. He was at Northwestern, not that I knew that, you know, and so I didn't know who Eric Procedion was, but all of a sudden he comes, you know, and things change in the, in the, in the, in the course and direction of that, of that school. And by my sophomore year, uh, you know, all of a sudden he goes nine and one his, my freshman year uh, and puts Notre Dame back on the map of what they were before. And all of a sudden, uh, all these stories. And then, um, so it's my sophomore year, um, I get to, you know, be a backup running back. And, um, and then I get a chance to start my junior year and we win a national championship um, my junior year. And uh, now I just want to let the listeners know the national championship back then wasn't like the national championship we have today where we have playoff games, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was more of a voting national championship than anything else and influenced by sports writers and or coaches in, in, in how they chose. But anyway, um, we had, uh, we had, uh, we had, were the national champions in the following year. I gave, I got to be captain of the football team. We lost two games uh, my senior year. Um, but then the NFL draft comes. I do remember getting a form letter, somewhat of a form letter in the mail on by other, some, some by teams. I think I got three or four of them and they were pretty much the same. And I had to fill them out. Here's <laughs> the form, form letter. <laughs> Name, <laughs> Robert Blyer. <laughs> you know. uh, okay, school, Notre Dame. Um, position, running back. Um, height, five foot, 11. Sounded good. I mean, really, in all honesty, I mean, who, who knows the difference in an inch or so? Okay, fine. Right. And weight, weight. My weight, about 100, I, I thought what sounded good, I could weigh 190 pounds, okay. And, um, but here's the interesting thing. It said uh, 40, 40 time. What's your 40 time? Well, we don't run the 40 time. I mean, we, it wasn't, in, you know, as important. Oh, I don't know, I never run the 40 time. 
pretty smart guy, I think. I can extrapolate. High school, I ran the 100-yard dash in competition. My best time ever, 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 ever best, win-aided and everything, best time was 10 flat. So you use that. So I go 10 flat. Hmm. Okay. 50. Okay. Just let's say 50, let's just say half, five seconds. Okay. So then we got to start now 40. Well, that cuts off 10 yards. So um, extrapolated, I put four, three. <laughs> I just put four, three. <laughs> Sound like a good number. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if anybody took any notice in it, but anyway, so that was that was it. And so the draft, and so the draft came. And so the draft was a Friday night and a Saturday. And the Sunday was the end of the draft. And there was 17 rounds. So people, it was 17 rounds, unlike today, which was only seven rounds, then it opens up to free agency. And, you know, so anyway, it was a Sunday night. Some of my teammates had been drafted prior to on Friday. And, and it's, you know, you go, okay, fine. Over the years at Notre Dame, so we've made some friends. Now we have a family um, that uh, kind of took some of us players underneath their wings and have us over for dinner and so on and so on. And so they invited us to go out to dinner, myself and a couple of the teammates. We're, we're now back about eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, and we're having a a uh, little libation afterwards, and we're just kind of talking. So, well, the news comes out, and uh, all of a sudden, in the background, then the sports comes out. So we're still over here BSing, and um, when all of a sudden they said, "Oh, and in the draft today, three uh, uh, three athletes from the South Bend area were drafted into the National Football League." So and so um, went to uh, from Indiana, I should say, Indiana went to so-and-so, uh, another player from um, Indiana State went to so-and-so, and, oh, the uh, Notre Dame's fighting Irish captain, Bob Rocky Blyer, went in the draft to the Pittsburgh Steelers. So as we're BSing over here, all of a sudden there was a, a lull. Hey, congratulations. Anyway, what are you going to do? And so... <laughs> <laughs> And that was the extent of my celebration in the 16th round by the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's amazing how that's changed over the years. You know, like now all of a sudden it's a three-day fan fest and they've got bands and everything. And you know, it's unbelievable. Uh, let, let me ask you a question. When, when you were at Notre Dame, when you were coming in, Parsesian's coming in, and th- like you, you touched on it, that turnaround was amazing. They went from two and seven to nine and one in his first year. Are you able to put a finger on what it was? Was it just a, you know, a good scheme or motivation or? No, and the reason, no, here, the reason, the reason that it had taken place was that Notre Dame, no, I mean, Notre Dame had always good athletes. I mean, they had good athletes and they they recruited well, you know, not that whether they're winning or losing or whatever, but they had good athletes. In 1960, in 1964, so era's first year, mm-hmm. the uh, NCAA changes the substitution ruling uh, in college football. Okay. Prior to that, 
prior to 64, the substitution was only three players for change of ball. So your quarterback went out, maybe your receiver went out and so on that you could interchange. So your players had to be two-way players. So your fullback was maybe a middle linebacker. You know, your center was a nose guard. So you had to have people in those positions able to play. Ultimately, that was a small group of people, you know. So all of a sudden, that changes. And um, era changes people. Okay. One of my teammates were prior, was a guy by the name of Pete Taranko. Pete sure. was from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and ultimately played for the Denver uh, Broncos. Um, but Pete was a 245-pound fullback, mm. tough, tough, a tough kid out of Johnstown. Well, Aaron moves him to a defensive tackle. Uh, we had another kid that was a running back um, at, at six foot four, two hundred and twenty pounds, and uh, and Aaron moves him to an offensive tackle. And so now all of a sudden he's moving these people around to different positions, thus allowing opportunities for other people to get a chance to play on both sides of the ball. Sure. So now all of a sudden he's using his talent to the best of his ability um, from, from all aspects of this game. And he's got, um, so he's got a team that, you know, starts to win and he's got a quarterback that uh, allows him to do that. And he's got running, you know, so everything came into play and all of a sudden finds himself undefeated going into the last game of the season against Southern Cal in which they lose out in California, but he goes nine and one. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah. And that, and that game, by the way, against USC, you're winning 17, nothing at the half. And then <laughs> he takes over. So you're that close to a fully undefeated season. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and when you were a sophomore, I'm sorry, when you were a junior, every couple of years, you have a game of the century, right? 1966 comes, uh, you know, and we are um, all of a sudden undefeated um, in, 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 in that schedule. And it comes down to, um, well, now we're playing Michigan State. And Michigan State and Notre Dame were ranked one and two in the, in the polls, depending on what the polls were. Um, and so now here was, for the first time, two number one teams or the one and two teams will get a chance to play for this mythical national championship uh, that before um, was always voted upon. But now here in the public eye, we get to see definitively who is the best of these two teams? And so it was a media buildup, you know, as we got into the game. And so we went up to Michigan State um, to play them. And they had a dynamic, tough, tough team. Um, and I can remember, I can remember being there and being introduced on the field before the game. And that was the first time, the first time in my life that I ever see air move when we were introduced. I mean, there was such a fan base that was there, not only Notre Dame, but Michigan State. I mean, it just, it was a loud, and I, it was just like, 
I could see the air moving. I had never experienced that before. Wow. And so to be a part of that game and uh, was uh, now, now, now just, I'm going to talk about that game just in a little bit. Now, Nick Eddy was our All-American running back. Sure. And um, two games before, he had, he had gotten hurt. He hurt his shoulder. So we kept him out of the Navy game. Now he's coming back to play in this Michigan State game because we, we needed him uh, in that game. And as we, took the, as we took the train up, we took the train up from South Bend to East Lansing, Michigan. It was one of those winter sleety days in uh, November. And uh, so as Nick was the, the, uh, getting off the train, um, was a steel steps, icy steps. He, he slipped on the, on the steps and he went to grab the handrail and his arm got caught in the handrail and he jerked his shoulder uh, and re-injured it. So now he's not playing. So I moved from right half back over to left back. Um, and um, George Gedeke, our All-American center, got hurt in the first um, quarter of that game. Terry Hanratty, our All-American quarterback, um, got hurt in the first quarter. Our backup, um, Coley O'Brien, was just diagnosed as a diabetic. Now, it doesn't sound like much today, but back then it was like, he's a diabetic. Well, what do we do? I mean, you know, beforehand. And so they were very concerned about his his ability to sustain, you know, a plane for four quarters, but now all of a sudden he's in the game playing for four quarters. So we had this kind of our big personnel were banged up and not, not being able to play in the game. And ultimately, as, uh, as the game comes, it was in an, in, in a, in a 10 to 10 tie. I, I, there wasn't overtime. There wasn't sudden death. It was just, it was over. Fortunately, I think we had one, we had one game left. And uh, we had to go out to Southern Cal uh, to play Southern Cal on national television. And we beat them 51 to nothing. And so it was like, oh, okay. And we became national champions. Right. Because- and was there like, and you know, that, that game is, is oftentimes viewed as controversial. Was there frustration that era it didn't go for it more in the last couple of minutes, or was it just like, hey? Well, that, yeah, I think you know there was frustration. I mean, not that anybody said anything at the time, but I can remember being on the field, and um, and so we got the ball, we got the ball back, and we're running the, ball. I mean, we're running the ball. Uh, yeah. It's in the fourth quarter, and I'm thinking we got to drop back. We got to throw it down the field, throw it on. You got to make an attempt to, you know, like you're going to win this ball or, or win this game, you know, and, and, and it really wasn't whether you buy into it or not, but it wasn't until after the game era himself actually had said, he said, you know, I, it wasn't, wasn't so much trying to win this game, you know, is that we didn't want to give uh, Michigan state a chance to be in a position to win this game of turning the ball over, you know, sure. and because uh, they had a great field goal kicker uh, who had kicked uh, many 50 yard field goals during that season. And we just didn't want him. He said, it, you know, it was, it was their responsibility to beat us 
and they didn't beat us. Um, and the best they could do was tie us at the time. So um, um, that was kind of his thought. And I, as a player, you know, you got all this adrenaline going and you want to win and think that you, you know, you need to do whatever you can to be able to, to attempt to win. Um, and I suppose it was somewhat of a satisfaction or a satisfying answer, you know, to say, okay, and we had that one game left. Michigan State did not. Um, and ultimately, um, we get to beat Southern Cal. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like he was doing the calculus and thought, I have a chance to showcase this squad one more time. <laughs> right. if we win. You know, so yeah, so makes sense. Um, and and so then, so then yeah, you find out over dinner at that country club in South Bend that you're drafted. Right. And it's funny because here you are, three years of high school, you never lose a football game. Three years at Notre Dame on the varsity, you lose four football games. Right. Your first six games in Pittsburgh, you lose all six. You That's right. On like October 10th of your rookie year, then you have in almost a decade of playing football. You're uh, right. You know, that, that's got to be what, – what does that do to you? I mean, first of all, you're a rookie. You're just happy you make the team because you're you know 16th <clears throat> round pick. What was, what was that like, that kind of change of mindset? You know, it, 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 yeah, I, I, you know, I look back now and say, oh, okay, fine. I was just, you know, I was focused on trying to make the team, as you had made mention. I was, I, that, I was just trying to make it and make the team, and I got a chance to make the team um, and playing special teams specifically, you know. And so um, that was so. Was also, I guess, a learning process for me. Just a learning, you know, a new thing. You're here in Pittsburgh, you know, you're playing on a professional team. Um, I could see some of the dissension that is taking place on that squad during that period of time because of the frustration with the head coach and you know other things that have taken place. Um, and um, so, for me, it was just kind of like. You know, nobody knew who I was to begin with. And so it was like, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't the savior, not at the 417th person picked in the draft that year. So thank you very much. I wasn't going to save their team. Um, and so it, for me, it was kind of just a learning curve and understanding and, you know, going through that experience of just being involved in the NFL at that time. Sure. And, and then come that December, you get drafted. And, and kind of tell me what, you know, here you are, you're in the NFL, you're a Notre Dame grad, you know, you're probably looking forward to the next season as the first season ends. And then all of a sudden you're told, you know, report to basic training. Tell me kind of about that. Well, I think also, I think that part of, part of that era or that period of time, at least in my mind, was that it's on your mind. I mean, the, Vietnam was on your mind because so prevalent in the news and, you, you know, fellow uh, classmates coming out of high school and or college, you know, that had gone in maybe somewhere in the ROTC in college and, you know, and we're going to serve. But also I would then see that some of the Packers, you know, were um, in the reserve or in the Army Reserve um, who got drafted or were joined the Army Reserve to take care of their obligation because now we had a draft that was going on during that period of time. Sure. Um, and so um, the lottery hadn't existed yet in, in that draft mechanism. And so anybody could be drafted. 
But I also noticed that Packer players were in the reserve. So on the back of my mind somewhere, you go, oh, I guess you make the team. You know, this counts. You just, they take care of it for you and you get in the reserve. Sure. So that was kind of my thought process. Then, um, so in the back of my mind, I knew it was going to it was going to be uh, taking taking place. Now, uh, the happiest day of my life, or one of the happiest days of my life, was in training camp as a fresh as a rookie, and uh, it was during the end of that training camp experience. Actually, we I think we had bro- broken a camp and we're back in Pittsburgh. Um, and so I, I walked out of a meeting and uh, uh, the Steelers head coach slipped my mind. Oh, Bill Austin. Uh, yeah, Bill Austin. Thank you very much. Bill Austin. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Bill goes, he said, uh, he said, Rock, can I talk to you for a moment? So I said, sure. He said, listen, uh, we got this letter in the mail and it was opened up accidentally. And, uh, uh, and it was my 1A classification, be eligible for the draft into the military. And he said, uh, we think you're good enough to make this team. And so we will take care of this for you. Now, whatever meaning taking care of this, I didn't know what that meant, but I was pretty happy. That- yeah, sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, fine, they'll take care of this. October comes, and and so I, 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 I finally went to the uh, to the office to uh, um, and to ask somebody. I said, I didn't go to the head coach. I just to Bill Austin. I just said, has anybody heard anything about taking care of of this? And uh, I said, oh, well, don't worry, we're having. We have a little problem. They said, uh, which was not just put in perspective. It was the height of the war. I mean, we had the most personnel in Vietnam in, uh, in 1968. We'd have over 500,000 troops uh, at that time. Reserves. He said, well, the general, uh, he said, the general retired. The congressman got defeated. <laughs> all their, all their in guys, I guess, you know, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, don't worry, we're, we're working on it. And so, well, all of a sudden, it slipped through the crack, and you know, by December, um, I got uh, I got my draft notification um, that I was going to go into the service, and and it was like this, which was so I'm over at Pitt Stadium. That's where we practice, the old Pitt Stadium, and I'm sitting there, you know, as we're getting ready to go out to practice. When um, one of the uh, equipment guys, you know, just one of the equipment guys, and you know, so in the middle of the of, of, of the locker room, there was a you know a, a table, you know, where all the fan mail would be deposited for the uh, for players. Now, as I tell people, I said it, it, it's a place I never visited. That fan table from the first day of training camp up through, I think this was about the tenth game of the season. <laughs> And not when you're the 417th person picked in the draft. Nobody knows you exist playing on a losing team. I said, my mother, God rest her soul, never even sent me a letter. Um, when all of a sudden, hey, Blyer, you got a letter over there for you. And so, honestly, God, so I go, oh, okay. So I stand up. I walk over thinking, who's writing me a letter? 
maybe a Notre Dame fan that wants an autograph from a former captain, who knows? And so I get there and I open it up and greetings. We'd like to inform you that you've been inducted into the armed services of your country. So as I tell people, I said, now that's the worst fan letter I've ever received in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And so so anyway, um, and it was to report the next morning, the next morning at 7 a.m. to the AFI stations to be inducted, not a week away. And so I'm going, what do you mean tomorrow morning? And so it was, (laughs) it got lost in the mail somewhere. By the time I got it, it was the day before. I was was supposed to get it a week ago. Anyway, so I get, uh, so I go down uh, that morning, you know, and so the best, anyway, they gave me high blood pressure, um, it, rightly so, but I, they gave me 24 hours <laughs> to get my stuff together. And so was, uh, I'm on the phone talking to my parents, you know, who's going to pick up my car, who's going to pick this stuff. I'm off the, the next day. Um, and so boom, that was it. And I was off to basic training. Wow. And, and by August of the next year, when the team is in training camp, you're in Vietnam. Right. You're in company C. You're on a grenade team and you guys are sent into battle to rescue company B who were like surrounded. Right. And you guys go in and I mean, obviously I'll let you describe it, but in, in the span of a very short period of time, you get shot in the left thigh and a grenade blows up at your right foot. Right. And you guys need to get out of there. That's right. <laughs> well, it was, and that was it. Anyway, so a sister company had been had been hit. They were in the field. Just to put it in the context uh, for those who didn't know, is that we worked out of an area of operation. And in that area of operation for our battalion, which was made up of four companies, um, that um, two companies would be in the field. And then one each company would be on a landing zone. Uh, up on top of a hillside or a mountain. And that's where the artillery was to protect us in the area. Uh, and that's where resupplies came in. So we would pull bunker guard uh, there for, you know, let's just say a week to 10 days. And then we'd rotate down in the field. Another company would come back up and then we'd rotate over to the other LZ. And so that was kind of the methodology. Mm. We were up on uh, LZ Siberia and Bravo Company was in the field and they got hit. There was movement that we knew from the north that was coming down, uh, a regiment of uh, uh, North Vietnamese uh, armies and VAs were were coming down into our area. And we were to be a catch-all for them along with the Marine Corps. So that was kind of the the idea. And, and, And as they're moving down into, anyway, so B Company was in the field. They got into a firefight or under attack and um, it was pretty heavy. We were called to reinforce them. So by the time we got to them, it wasn't until late at night. Um, and um, by the time we pulled them out uh, and the, um, the, the deceased dead bodies along with us and we ran into an ambush Boom, um, and then the word was to, okay, leave, leave the bodies, we'll come back and pick them up. Um, and so two days later, that's what we were doing, go back into that area. 
um, and um, it was a reinforced platoon at the time. And so um, I was a grenadier, I was carrying a grenade launcher and uh, I was like eighth in line. And as we walked over this race and open race paddy, our point man all of a sudden saw movement across the berm and he, and he started opening up fire. Uh, and uh, as the enemy ran, so did he, pulling everybody out the middle of the race paddy and machine gun starts to level the area. Now we're diving into the race paddy as best we possibly can. Um, and so I crawled on my hands and knees to the end of the race paddy. Um, there was another one lying below us. Four guys were pinned down out in the open in, in that race paddy. My responsibility was to get um, some firepower on that machine gun position was maybe 150, 200 meters away. Um, and so it, as I breached my, uh, my grenade, uh, was it called an M79, it's like a sh sawed off shotgun, one barrel, you break it in two, put a grenade in and shoot the hip. Um, that, that's when I got hit the first time. And, um, and then we dropped back behind some protection got enough firepower on that position to at least cease fire. And uh, the four guys who were pinned down got out of there and came back. And we crawled back to our commanding officer um, and they probed our perimeter and of course got close enough um, when all of a sudden uh, I see a grenade come flying through the air and my commanding officer right in the middle of the back and bounced off of him, bounced towards me and I wasn't but three feet from him, you know, and as it came and, uh, and trying to jump out of the way, it blew up and blew up to my right foot, knee and thigh. And, um, so it was hit for the second time uh, that day. And um, finally, a sister platoon fought its way down and, um, to, to drag us out of there. So it wasn't late at night, you know, they dragged us through the night to get to a security area and helicopters came in and took us to an aid station. Um, and then I went to Da Nang and uh, went to uh, Tokyo and then came back to the States. So that was kind of a... Yeah, I, I heard I heard it took 14 hours from when you were hit until when you had uh, your first dose of morphine uh, to kill some pain. I mean, that's, that's just got to be excruciating. Adrenaline took off. Adrenaline was pumping pretty hard during that period of time. And so yeah. other things going on. And even though it was finally, it was wearing off and it was wearing off and it was wearing off at the end. Oh boy, it just, I mean, it really was uh, painful and, and finally by the time I, you know, got some, uh, <laughs> I saw a medic, you know, I said, first of all, they, so he gave me one shot and then that didn't like do anything. And I said, well, give me another one. He said, I can't. He said, I can't. He said, I need you to be at least coherent when you get back to the aid station so you can tell them, you know, what's wrong with you. And so out of the field station, then to the Nang, and I got a, then I spent three weeks in Tokyo. Um, and so, you know, as that story goes, and um, was that I finally, in Tokyo, uh, so I finally got enough courage, I think, at that time to ask my physician. And so still in the back of my mind was, okay, how, how much damage do I really have to both my legs? And what did he think that it would take to get back? I mean, can I get back and play football? I mean, how, what kind of damage, a nerve damage specifically, I was concerned about in my, in, in my foot and 
with him. He said, you'll have a normal life. You'll do things that normal people do. Don't, just don't expect to get back on the gridiron. You just won't have the strength and the flexibility to do the things that are necessary to be a running back in the NFL. So it was kind of like, he, you know, he just sucked that hope out. And honestly, two days later, and I got this postcard in the mail. And it's got two lines on it. It said, Rock, team's not doing well. We need you, Art Rooney. Oh, somebody cares, you know, kind of a thing. Not that they didn't need me, but just that somebody took the time to care to write that out. And ultimately, ultimately, and I put this in the context, being the, being the people that they, um, being the, the owners that they were, the people that they were, and they cared about their, their players. And so I, I, I did eventually come back uh, in 1970, got out of the service. And then, and then, of course, you had, it was a long road. It, it's one thing to, you know, kind of be up and on your feet. It's another thing to be playing NFL football. Right. Um, my understanding is you, you come back in 70. Now, Noel is the, <clears throat> Chuck Noel is the coach. And right. he has told the team, I've studied the film. It's not that you guys don't try hard. It's just you're not very good. That's right. It's very good. And it's true. <laughs> or, or at least it reported to me it was true. Right, right. Um, but so you you ultimately are put on IR in 70, giving you a chance to you know kind of rehabilitate more. Yeah. yeah. And then in 71, they do cut you, but you get waived and nobody else picks you up. So you come back to the taxi squad. Right. And and so and like so they're buying you time to rehabilitate and you know, get back on your feet. Right. You know, and so that it was one of those comments I made before about ownership, you know, and how right. important that the, 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 I mean, the, the Rooney family was, and especially in, in, in my case, whether they felt guilty or not or whatever, however they felt, but, but they did. So that first year when I came back in 1970, you know, and I was working out when I was at Fort Riley, Kansas, because I was ultimately going, trying to get myself back in shape trying to get to the gym. And so my day, my day at Fort Riley, Kansas was I would get up like at six o'clock or five thirty in the morning and I would go out and start to run distance and it'd start like a mile and then a mile and a quarter and a mile and a half and a couple miles and get that done because I had to be at work at six o'clock in the morning or seven, but seven o'clock in the morning. So I got my running out of the way. And then after I had, um, finished at three o'clock I started going over to the gym where I could go work out and then I'd get back to my apartment and then I'd go on sprints somewhere you know as best I possibly can only try to get myself in somewhat decent shape getting back into the training camp so I went to training camp and um <laughs> and it beat me up I mean it really took its toll it was just I, and I maybe wasn't ready and I limped and got through and uh, but but they kept me around, you know, just, and as you had made mention, they put me on injured reserve and said, okay, fine. I think that, you know, our doctors can take a look at you and see what needs to be done. And I had another operation and so on. So I came back the following year and right before training camp, I had pulled the hamstring and then re-injured it in, in training camp again. And, and given the past history and, and you're right. And so nobody ever tells you that, but put me on waivers and come back and then they put me on the taxi squad uh, and they bought me a year they bought me two years to heal get bigger and stronger and so on yeah so that was it and so 1972 come 
questions. So now I'm back in camp and I'm back in camp. And, um, and it, so it's now that three year period of, of training. And I come back in camp and I weigh 218 pounds. I bench press 460 pounds. I squat 600 pounds. I got 18 and a half inch biceps. And you know how come I knew that? Because I measured them myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that now in 1972, the year before, just to, 1972, we um, the the Steelers hired their first stretching coach um, because guys were having hamstring, either just tightening muscles and so on. And so it's a new evolution of, you know, stretching and getting more flexibility within uh, 1973, as I'm coming back into camp, um, is the first time that they hire a weightlifting coach. Chuck Knoll had, had known or decided that um, guys were getting tired at the end of the season or wearing down. And the only way to maintain that is to be able to sustain a, a lifting program through the season so they can maintain their strength and so on. So Lou Ricky was the uh, was the, the coach came in. So now, now this is our first day of training camp. Chuck comes in, he's got his whole team there. And I'm very proud of myself because of the change I've made over these years of working out and so on. And Chuck goes, um, Listen, I want to let you know that we've uh, hired our new uh, weightlifting coach, Lou Ricky, um, and so we are going to start in training camp, uh, a weightlifting program that everybody has to go through. We have it uh, down, you know, what needs to be done, functional exercises to maintain strength uh, as we go through the season, offense one day, defense the next day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We'll do this training camp and what I don't want. And he looks right at me. Are any bodybuilders on this team? I'm going, yeah. And it worked so hard to be able to get to the spot. And now he's pointing me out. <laughs> Anyways, I always thought that was funny. Oh, that's great. <laughs> like, man, I can't, I can't yeah, win. I can't win. Losing. I can't win losing. <laughs> yeah, was it so 1973? You know, we, 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 I make the team. Um, and, um, so it, it, there's it, it, in 1972. I have to tell you this: 72. So 72, I'm, I make the team, and um, and then I was the leading ground gainer during the exhibition season. Okay, mm -hmm. and in 1973, I was the leading ground gainer during the exhibition season. Um, and in both of those seasons, I never carried the ball turner. Remaining part of the season. Right. <laughs> I, I, 73, I carried it once. I think I carried it once during that whole season. Yeah. But playing special teams, playing special teams. And it's sometimes very interesting in what we go through in our own individual mindsets on how you perceive what's going to be. And I just thinking, you know, for me, it was 1970, 71, 72, 73, going through this and, and not any giving more playing time, you know, still playing special teams. And to come back again in 1974, oh, you know, from my point of view, I was going to have to fight with every free agent draft choice rookie again, you know, sure. um, 
and I just didn't think that was fair. And I thought maybe maybe my life's going in another direction. I I, mean, I did come back. I did make a team. I got a chance to play. Maybe not to the level I thought, but hey, um, that wasn't part of the deal. And and so after the '73 season, I left the Steelers. And I tell you that I I mean I quit. I left the Steelers. Yep. And I was living in Chicago selling life insurance. And so sometimes you think about in those little the offset things that, that changed your life or things that happened or people that influence you along the way. And so in this case specifically, uh, I was in Chicago. Uh, unbeknownst to me, there was a, a NFL alumni or NFL uh, a fundraiser that was taking place for Boys and Girls Club. Uh, guys are coming from all over. All the current players are coming in in Chicago to this dinner. Um, and uh, Andy Russell, who was captain of our football team, was coming in. And so he gives me a call and he said, hey, let's get together. I haven't seen you. Blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's like in the back of my mind, I go, well, I'm not. I'm not coming back, you know, so I declined very politely. I did. I said, no, I'm busy. I can't do it. Then he pushed and I declined some more. And he pushed some more. And then he asked me why. And I said, well, I quit. I, I'm not going back next year. And so he gave me this piece of advice. He said, you can't quit. He said, if you quit, what you've already done is you've already made a decision for that coaching staff. Do you like them well enough to make decisions for them? He said, no, your responsibility, if this is what you want to do, that you come back and you make them make a decision. You back them in the corner. You give them every reason to keep your relationship, but you don't cut yourself. I mean, the reality of this game is that we're all expendable. Reality of this game is we all can be cut at any time. But if this is what you want, then you don't cut yourself. You know, and it was just maybe the right time at the right place to give me the inspiration I needed to come back. And I went back. Everything I pers- I did have to fight with every free agent draft choice. And I was leading ground gainer once again during <laughs> the exhibition season. And I tell people that I said the reason I was the leading ground gainer wasn't because of the fact I was bigger, better, faster than all the other running backs. It was just the simple fact that during the exhibition season, I played more than anybody else. I carried the ball more than anybody else. Given those two simple statistics, I better be the leading ground game because all they were providing was an opportunity to try to make the team. And they had to keep me. And I was the fifth running back, as I tell people, out of four at the beginning (laughs) of the season. Back, Back playing special teams. But things happen, you know, so all of a sudden, Franco, the starting fullback, gets hurt. Frenchie Fuqua, the backup, becomes the starter. I become the backup to the backup. Wow. <laughs> I'd never <laughs> been there before. So with renewed vigor in that first game, second game, third game, fourth game, Frenchie gets hurt. And I'm inserted in the game. Along with my running mate, Preston Pearson, he finishes crew at the Dallas Cowboys. And I tell you this because Preston breaks one forty-three yards and scores and gives us a lead. And we go on at halftime, go over Simon's adjustments. Who's going to start the second half? Maybe those guys that got you the lead in the first half. And we get to start the second half. And as a team, we win that game. Following week, everybody's still banged up. So Preston and I get to start. And as a team, we do. We win that game. The week thereafter, it's a Monday night game, an extra day of healing. Frank now becomes healthy. Damn. That's okay. At least I got a chance to play, show, prove what I could do. And we had our pre-game, pre-game meal after that breakout groups. All the running backs get together. And Dick Hoke, our backfield coach, says, Franco, you and Rock will start tonight. 
I was momentarily I, I, and honest got quite confused. I don't know how we both could play the same position at the same time. When it dawned on me, I was going to play the fullback position. I was going to play the other running back position. Nobody told me that. I wish they would have. And I got a chance to start that game. And as a team, we win that game. So we get to start the family. As a team, we win that game. We start the remaining part of the season. Um, and we win the division. And we go to the playoffs. And we win the playoffs. And we go to the Super Bowl for the first time. And we win the Super Bowl. And we play six more years together in the backfield. And in 1977, won three more Super Bowls. And in 1976, Franklin and I became the second set of running backs in the history of the NFL, each to gain 1,000 yards rushing in one season. And after 11 seasons or 12 seasons, I, I retired. And so, um, but the interesting thing is that the reason I got the job wasn't because of my height and speed or size, things I did not possess. It was because of a talent. Prior to that breakout group, all those many years ago, Chuck Noll had stopped our backfield coach and said, listen, you've got a weakness in your backfield. Who's your best blocker? He said, Blyer. He said, then start. And one talent. And sometimes we forget that talent that we have, you know, that keeps us going around. And so it was one talent that, you know, that, that allowed me to get the chance to play in those remaining years of my career and win those four Super Bowls. Um, but it's a reminder that no matter who we may be, we all have a talent. We all have a talent, one nature or another, different than anybody else's. Um, and it's our responsibility to be able to define what that talent is and use it to the best of our ability as we move forward in this world, and the people that we touch and yeah. the changes that we can make. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, and, and um, you know, talking about that 74 team, that's obviously the first of four Super Bowl champs in the, in the window of six years. Right. And that was a fascinating year because you basically have three quarterbacks who are capable of starting Terry Bradshaw, Terry Hanratty, and Joe Gilliam. Gilliam is the starter at the beginning of that season. And he's actually winning games, but not putting up great numbers. And then Bradshaw starts, then Hanready starts, then back to Bradshaw. As a team, are you guys looking at this going, what are we doing? Or you've got enough to worry about, let that sort itself out. How does that kind of, because you know you always hear the line, if I've got two good quarterbacks, I have no good quarterbacks. And you have three, <laughs> right? We have three. So, you know, it was, it was an interesting, uh, so 1974. So this is what we're talking about. 1974, yep. There was a player's strike. People forget that there was a player's strike. Sure. Um, and we also had um, 14, I think, 14 new guys or rookies make the team that year. So what are you thinking about? And Joe Gillum was our starting quarterback because of the fact that he crossed the picket line and he went into camp uh, early. And Bradshaw and Hanratty stayed out. So he had two more weeks on music and had a great release and had a confidence whether we had a had a outward confidence in himself about calling plays and what, what to do and so on. So four, one, and one. Yeah, four, one, and one. Four, one, and one in those first five games uh, of the season. But we were just winning. Defensively, we were winning, you know, and, and it wasn't. Uh, and then Joe, you know, the unfortunate thing with Joe Gillum, since he's, you know, I mean, he's, he, he's passed away. Um, but Joe had his own individual problems. He had his own um, internal problems that he was dealing with 
his own insecurities and size and you know whether he could play or not play that didn't manifest itself outward but it ultimately it did by 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 trying to cover his insecurities with um with drugs and uh and then all of a sudden he'd be he'd come in late you know he'd become late to practice and you'd just see this little decline that was taking place um and it got to a point where you know adventure you know he just wasn't shown up um and then there was a battle between the two terries at the time bradshaw and then you know and then hanratty and then bradshaw and then hanratty again until terry took over uh the major part of that season yeah us all, all the way to the Super Bowl. yeah that's amazing and um and it so and jumping 70 so you guys win in 74 and 75 76 a lot of people think that was one of the best Steeler teams ever <clears throat> The defense was insane. I think you gave up two touchdowns the last nine weeks of the year, which right. is crazy. Um, you guys roll into the playoffs. You steamroll Baltimore, but you and Franco get hurt in that game. And then yeah. in the NFC championship game against Oakland, you basically don't have a running game and you lose. What That's, was what was that like? That was you know that was uh, you know so in 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 so in, in that game against uh, Baltimore, we were playing up there and. Uh, um, it was, um, I, so I got a turf toe. I mean, it, so the, you know, the stadiums today are much better than they were back then. And not to sure. take it away from Baltimore, uh, but it, it, it was a hard, it was a baseball field, you know, it was a baseball, basically stadium. It was, like the infield was right there. Yeah, infield. And so on television, it, it looked great because they painted the sand and the dirt green so it looked like grass so it came out pretty well but it was just hard no and we're just hard and so i got a, a turf puck from behind and, and stepped or whatever and pushed down it so it jammed my toe and and i and i couldn't get any movement franco had his ribs uh, banged up you know in that game as well but it was also a game just uh, as a little side note uh we were done in the uh <laughs> in the locker room watching the um who we were going to play the following week uh it, it, and so all of a sudden they have, there's a there's a uh, there's a break-in into that game uh and they come to our stadium and so there's and all of a sudden the story is <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a there's a piper cub airplane stuck in the upper deck of the stadium where uh a pilot I guess wanted to <laughs> see how good of a pilot he was. Was going to land and take off from the field and come up and go out that way. And he yeah. quite didn't make it, and he ended up in the upper decks, uh, head nose. And so we think of the fact is that what if this was a close game? What if uh, Baltimore was winning? You know, nobody would have left. Well, it was a blowout. By the fourth quarter, people were leaving those those upper deck seats, and people were gone. And thank God, it was a was a funny experience to be a oh, part. Yeah. Of. yeah, I remember that. And it was like it was like dang, it was like up in the top rows. It's like he almost got it up and out. It was surreal. Yeah, I've I've seen the pictures of that. Things like dangling backwards. <laughs> right. So but then it, we go out and we got to play. Uh, we're, we're playing Oakland out in Oakland. Um, in, in the next game, and so 
both Franco and I couldn't do. Put an offense in, was a two tight end offense, one back, uh, which works wonderful, wonders today, but didn't work back then as much. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we lost the game. Yeah. yeah. And, and I have to ask you about the 78 team. So you guys go 14 and two. You have a great season. You get into the Super Bowl. It's it's a great Super Bowl. Back and forth, you and Dallas. Under a minute to go in the first half, tie game. And I, I was thinking about this. Mike Tyson is the one who had the line. Everybody's got a plan until you get, <clears throat> excuse me. Everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And <laughs> you, you guys have the ball, 20 seconds to go in the half. And you're supposed to run a very certain route. But I think it was Charlie Waters disrupted the route. So you had to make an adjustment on the fly. Bradshaw's rolling out. He's making an adjustment and he hits you and you catch the ball at its apex. Right. I know Andy Russell has joked <laughs> four inches off the ground, right, 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 right. <laughs> but obviously it's a lot more than that. Um, tell me about, it must've been exhilarating. Tell me about that. <clears throat> well, it was just, you know, it's one of those, it was, so it was a quick, the, the play, as you described, was really a quick pass play to the halfback where I go, it was a set, it was a third and one situation on the seventh line, and so it was just to pick up the first down. Like you know, hit me just down the line of scrimmage, pick up one or two, three yards or whatever it is coming up. So all of a sudden, um, the Didi uh, Lewis, who is my outside linebacker, jumps across and takes my path, and so the best I could do is cut in front of them, and so I go up the field in that regards. Bradshaw rolls around looking for the receiver. I'm not there, you know, and so all of a sudden guys are chasing him down. And, and so I can remember in 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 the end zone, I'm in, and I'm standing there or waiting there or whatever it is, and Bradshaw and it would kind of like make contact, and he throws the ball. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, he threw it over my head. I mean, he's throwing it over my head. And I and I and I my thought process, if I can just get my fingers on it, maybe I can, maybe I can just maybe I can just tap it down, you know, maybe it might fall or I could just tip it or something of that nature. And I got both my hands up, as you can see in the picture over my head right there. Um, and funk, I mean it's stuck. I mean, I was surprised as really anybody at that time at that body. So I want to tell people that see, actually, I was much higher. I was much higher than this. See this right there. I was much, they caught me on the way down. So actually, I'm on my way down into the frame. It was like 18, 19 feet up high, and then they came down. <laughs> but but that gave us the lead. You know, and I'm going to tell you this. So that gave us the lead, and um, and so. Then we had a 17-point lead, and then all of a sudden they chipped back at, at the Cowboys did and, and, and made it a closer game uh, than it than it was until in, in uh, um, uh, until we won the game. So I have to tell you this about that game. So some time ago, I I came across a stat book. You know, it's how you forget what you do. You know, and I was saying, oh, I wonder what I did. You know, in the game, you know, like how much time did I how many charge did I carry the ball and so on. So I, I go look at my statistics. I go, oh, okay. I carried the ball twice in that game and gained one yard. <laughs> I caught one pass and recovered one onside kick at the end of the game. But I made the cover of Sports Illustrated. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> It's so funny. Ten combined yards, but probably the most iconic catch in your, you know, your life. That's right in my lifetime. Yeah. 
That's awesome. That's that's so cool. And yeah, and you were the one, like you said, Dallas scores two late touchdowns with about a minute or maybe <clears throat> maybe 30 seconds to go. They're kicking an onside kick. And if they recover it and score a touchdown, they win. Right. They, they win. win. That's right. And you, you came and up I, with the ball and that ended. Now I gotta tell you this, and here's the honesty. So I so we got our all hands team that's out there receiving the ball. I'm in the middle, so I'm I'm the first, and we got three, you know, other receivers, and you know, nobody that's used to being there are all up in front in case they're what they're going to do. Yeah. And so human nature takes over. I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, "Don't kick it to me. Just <laughs> don't kick it to me, please. Don't kick it to me. I don't want to be the fool. I don't want to be." And so he dribbles it to me, <laughs> and, and so I get. Oh, I don't want to fumble it. So I'm in there and I, I get the ball. And honestly, God, it was the hardest I ever was hit <laughs> in that game. It was right. Everybody was crushing in trying to get the ball. Yeah. Uh, that amazing. must have been must have been exhilarating. That ended it right there. That ended it. That was it. The funniest thing about watching the clip of that <clears throat> of that touchdown is I think it's Kurt Gowdy. His call is, oh my lord, touchdown. And then there's a couple of seconds, and you hear Merlin Olson say, He's not that athletic. That's <laughs> right. That's right. He's, but that was a heck of a catch. It was a heck of, yeah. He was not that athletic. Well, they said to me, well, Merle, yeah, I didn't think that he was that good of a broadcaster. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's so funny. Um, well, look, Rocky, I've, I've taken up okay. a ton of time. So, uh, so first of all, thank you so much. Um, I have to. Uh, I, I, I found a great quote that I thought perfectly. Kind of tied together your you know your experience in Vietnam with your <clears throat> football experience. Um, you said the years that I spent in a Steeler uniform and the time spent in the military stressed the importance of teamwork and the sacrifice you had to make to accomplish the mission. Each emphasized responsibility and accountability. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great quote. Um, but anyway, but look, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much so. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Like what it is